Welcome back to the bag drop. Professor, good to see you, sir. Top of the morning. I don't know how top of the morning it is. I'm uh I'm struggling a little bit over here. Been down, been been down and out with a little bit of, I don't know if it's food poisoning or what, but we're hanging in there. You're looking good though. You must have you've played good golf recently. You're you're beaming. There's some there's a little twinkle in your eye. We'll get that. I, I am. Thank you, sir. I, I had a little bit of a, a, a spin on a few new golf courses. I always like Uh-oh. the adventure of trying something new. Um, new. New to you or new builds? Uh, uh, new to me. Okay. This is 19. I'll, I'll just go to one of them uh, on my little road trip back from the Chicago Club Championship. Congrats off the top of the show. Congrats to Brian McCarthy, our first thir- three-time champion, three-peat back to back to back uh, on the gross club championship for, for a new club uh, in Chicago. The guy, it really an inspirational game. I, I love the way he plays golf. I love his demeanor um, and uh, a wonderful person in his own right. People really do. He, he's, he's a quieter competitor. Like he's very focused out there, but he's got some of the best one-liners if you get him talking like, and he did in some of our match plays and um, he's just, he's just a wonderful guy. So congrats to him. And then the other one is John Pachorik, uh, who is our, our net champion. Awesome dude. Um, inspiration. And I actually might get to John here in our, our episode, Kevin, cause I know you and I have been chatting offline about what we want to talk about today. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a different show here on the bag drop, which, uh, uh, this might be one you listen to on like 1.2 speed or 1.5. We're, we're going to let it rip the professor and I, no guest, no guest coming on the show today, but, uh, but I got to shout out John Pachorik who won our, our net division club championship, Kevin, he, he is, uh, I can't remember if he's turning 50 or 60. I'd be surprised at either one, but he, uh, was a former college quarterback at university of Michigan. Oh, wow. And he, uh, so he's obviously a good athlete. Yeah. He's um, been, he's been in the heat before. Yep. But as, as time goes on, as we all know, you know, you kind of lose a little bit of that competitive drive and, uh, you kind of try to find to replace it. And he, he somewhat replaced it with golf, but it wasn't, I don't think competition. It was more, uh, getting in shape and, mm. and becoming a better self. And, uh, he set a goal for himself to get to Scotland and, uh, walk 18 holes carrying his own bag. Oh, wow. And he just did that at the end of September. And then he wins our net club championship the very next week. I was like emotional, like talking to him. I mean, he, we we should have him on the show. We should Absolutely. have all of our club championship show because he 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 has a story to tell. But it's also just like the reasons he plays golf are so uh, inspiring, just awesome. Just like wow, that, that think about a game being able to do that for somebody. And mm-hmm. um, and so, congrats to our club champs. I had to say that off the show, off the of the half of the half of the hour. We got our Atlanta club championship coming up in, in a few weeks, and so I'm looking forward to that as well. But um, Culver. I- I got before you jump to call. I got to oh, ask. Sorry. So Brian, first, congrats to both Brian and John. I got to got to put some people on the spot here in the Chicago group. Who's taking down Brian? You call give give three names for next year. That's a light a little fire under them to see if we can stop a quad champ. I mean, awesome to Brian if he goes four in a row. But I mean, there's light the one fire guy. under three people. Oh boy, there three people. Uh, or if there's that, one, or if there's just one, you wanna. Well, the, the one that was okay. So in the finals, I'm all right. Two names for sure coming up: Kyle Smith, come on, and, Kyle, and Stephen Parkerson. Uh, those two gentlemen. So, uh, Stephen played well, got to the finals. 
Kyle, you played like trash. <laughs> you know, he, you got to He didn't walk anything in, nothing like that. Oh, he was walking. <laughs> Kyle walks after, we talked about this. Kyle walks after 96% of his putts and, and probably, what, 5% of them go in? I mean, yeah, the confidence. Unfortunately, unfortunately I've seen a few of them on the, uh, the good side go in. Yeah, yes. We, you and I have been on the, the other side of that. And, and he's a phenomenal competitor, also a former quarterback. Interesting uh, parallel there to John Petrorek. But uh, yeah, dude, he, uh, he's got uh, so much game, Kyle does, and, and sometimes he struggles to, to harness it. And, um, and so I, I'm going to light a fire on Kyle. I think there's a bunch of big strides he can make to, to give the, the champ, champ, champ uh, a uh-huh. run. Brian. Um, and then Steven Parkinson definitely gets one. Uh, Scotty Rolf, who's now contending yeah. in the Atlanta chapter. So he's a former club champion now contending in the Atlanta chapter. Uh, he, he, he would have definitely been, you know, head to head with Brian each of these years, but now he's down in, in Atlanta going for that title. So he's the, in that field is going to be stacked. That's so I, I'm looking forward to recapping that one, but I'll give you one more name for the gross division. That's think here. Come on, Matt, who's going to be, um, Oh, former club champ, John Ballou. He's had his second child. I know what position oh. you're in, John. It's, it's tough. It's tough to get back in that driver's seat, but he's got tons of game and he's so solid. He could definitely um, knock Mr. McCarty off his, his uh, high horse here, but uh, what, what a deserving champ. I mean, he really is. And uh, uh, it'll be fun to see if anyone can chase him down in future years. Nice. Yes. Well, good luck to all of them. And Hopefully, yeah, family life settles down for John a little bit, and then you can get back after after pursuing that club champ. I uh, I, I got to call out the the professor's playing hurt today, folks. Uh, thanks for joining us, and, and I'm, especially I'm, I'm, I'm no MJ. Let's put it that way. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, if I could share the text chain that's been back and forth, I I would have given this a three percent chance of today happening, but. Uh, you 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 haven't traced it back to any meal that you've had, any food poisoning that's that's occurred. No, no, I haven't. I think um, I don't know. I got a I got a soft stomach, you know that, and uh, something got me. Something got me. So you know, I'm, I was on a golf uh, golf trip, upgrading some courses, and you know, the first first morning I wake up and I can't keep anything down for the next uh, 36 hours. So that's not a good feeling. And you still played your rounds. Still played. Um, bunch of mountain golf, so you couldn't even think about walking it. So just get in the cart, stay in the cart, get out, hit the golf shot, move on. Yep. What's the the illest you've ever been on a golf course? Do you have a, oh, a yeah. memory? I mean, this is, you know, when we get into this happiness idea, this is not a happy time in my life with golf. Uh, but man, the number of migraines I'd get, I remember back in oh, tournament man. golf on, on the call the, after the 36 whole day. And, you know, we can talk about what triggered those, but um, Penn State, man, Penn State, I remember puking all most of the night, all morning. Um, had to get out as, again after 36 whole day and get out and play. I remember puking on the third tee box, something like that. Um, yeah, I think that's the sickest I've ever been because I was actually puking during the round and it wasn't just a hungover, you know. Hangover. I don't count those as being sick. That's just, oh, that's almost be, a performance. That's just being an idiot, the right? Like you're just being an idiot. That's on you. But that one, yeah. And I just remember, I remember eagerly in the last hole for like 74 and one of the more proud <laughs> rounds I had. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, the fact that you're throwing up on tee boxes and you you bring it back to 74. That's pretty darn good. But yeah, we're here. We're gonna we're gonna get through. We're this. here. We're we're rolling. So I, so I cut you off on Culver. That's the the twinkle in the eye. 
I know a yeah, lot of people listening, you know, they've, they've heard of Culver, maybe played it. Um, but you just, you said some words pre, pre-record that I hadn't heard come from you before. Yeah, truly special. And I think this idea of spirit courses, I, I texted you yeah. after this round. And um, I think this is going to be another one of the long form pods that you and I have where we talk about the idea of spirit courses, just courses that really resonate with you, that you see a little bit of yourself in, that you feel uh, the joy joy mm-hmm. while you're out there. And, and, um, I had a pretty magical night at Culver. Uh, you know, I was driving over to the club championship, uh, we, we just had a few hours. I was kind of debating if I could get it in and, and Mike Vesely, the superintendent there at Culver, amazing guy. He extended the invite and I said, I can't turn this down. I got to get there. And I've never I played it before. I've, uh, played most of the Langfords within my driving distance. There's a couple more I got to get to, but I'm a Langford guy. I grew up on a Langford, um, and and I've really enjoyed my Chicago time, learning more about him as a Chicagoan. So I always seek him out, and I don't. I, I think it's my favorite. It's have my you, favorite. Uh, have you played Clover Nook? No, I have Cincinnati. No, no, that'd be. So I think it's the favorite, my favorite length for I've ever played. I also have a soft spot for nine holes. There's something mm-hmm. so beautiful about a, a nine and, and 12 especially holes. I love 12 hole courses, but nine hole courses have a special place in my heart, special place for new club as well um, with places like the Dunes Club and Sweetens Cove hosting some of our staples. And uh, so Culver, I just, it, I, I focused in on the the conditioning there. I mean, honestly, Mike is is remarkable to me and, and kind of inspiring in that not a lot of people play Culver. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there for the academy, for the students of Culver. Uh, I think alumni get to play it as well. It doesn't have a lot of rounds, but not in like a, a weird exclusive way. I don't feel like it's just, it's just the nature of it. It's not really near a whole lot uh, other than the vacationers yeah. that go to that lake that it sits on. Is it fair to say they don't have like a true business operation? Going? They don't have a true, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's an extension. It's a facility of that academy mm-hmm. and not really a, a, a a business operation. That's a great way to Much like that. a rec center at a university, right? Like a lot of them, some of them obviously do actually farm out memberships to the public, but most, a lot of them don't. Most don't. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. So it'd be like, you know, they have a, a, a boathouse too for the rowing team and things like that nature. I mean, the golf course is part of it. And I guess the, the story goes, and this is what I don't know, but I've read about is Culver was, I think 2013, they got, finally got a restoration. And up until that time, it was just a, a consistent decline from 1924 to it, you know, a lot of grassed over bunkers, a lot of the greens shrinking and things kind of disappearing. Uh, they brought in Bobby weed, which I thought was interesting. I haven't mm-hmm. seen Bobby's Bobby's name, uh, in the Midwest all that often. And, um, you know, he restored a lot of that. He took back some of the encroaching trees and, um, widened some fairways, redid some bunkers, uh, expanded some greens. But I think under Mike, the superintendent, Mike Vesley, I think it really started to pop. And and he takes this deeper sense of care and pride in his course. Not when you talk to him and he's been on the pod, I, I didn't do the interview. It was uh, one of our national members, Jake Brown, who who's a big admirer of Mike's. He, he did the interview, but I remember just like getting the sense from Mike that he wants to do his best because that's who he is. And he does it every day, almost like how a 
a Buddhist would take care of their mm. garden or how they would take care of what is the bonsai tree, right? It's, it's your duty to take care of this thing, this asset in a way that uh, respects it. And, and I just saw everywhere how beautifully conditioned this golf course is, but not in a perfection way. Like it wasn't immaculate. There's still clover patches. There's still some dirt patches, but especially in the mind of a golfer, the areas where a golf shot can be played, should be played, shouldn't be played. They mattered a lot. Mm. And what I mean by that is they were firm. I can't, I, I can't believe how firm he had this place. It was a uh, tight turf graph, grass in the areas that really mattered. And uh, the, just the framing of certain things had a little bit more attention to detail. The bunkering had a little bit more attention to detail, but not in an immaculate way. Mm-hmm. And I haven't been to a lot of places like that and other, other than Scotland and Ireland. Um, and so I just had this, this really... Uh, revered sense of what it takes to present the place the way it did, play the way that it did. And then just each and every golf shot was a thrill. Yeah. And, and I, I did leave thinking, man, if I had to loop a course for the rest of eternity, you know, I Matt, Matt uh, uh, croaks tomorrow and he's, he's off in uh, the golf heavens playing a course over and over again for the rest of eternity. I, this would be up there for me. Yeah. It really would. Wow, that's those are strong words. Um, I mean, I've been following Michael for a long time on on Twitter, and anybody that's interested in the grounds of the game, he's a great follow. And I guess one of the things is this true from your perspective? Now that you've been there and you know engaged with Mike a good bit, he seems to be you know. There's different versions of superintendents. Sometimes there's a superintendent that looks at the golf course as a garden, right? So that's I grow grass. That's what I do. I'm a superintendent. My job is to grow grass and manicure grass. And obviously a lot of times you see great conditioning and the sense of green and lushness on those. Where he seems to be that form of like thinking about the playability of the course. And that doesn't only mean like to your point about firmness and what, what are the best conditions for playability, but also the design of the course, right? Like, oh, this green patch should be out here or this contour should actually be changed a little bit because we want this sort of playability. He strikes me as that superintendent from afar. Um, is that what you, is that, was that, that, is there any evidence to that now that you've been there and, you know, engaged with him a good bit? I think, yeah, I think so. I think he, um, does think about how the course actually plays and the strategic value of Langford and what was intended and how this slope matters and this slope matters. I, I think when you pinpoint some of the areas that like, I, I haven't really talked to him after actually, I sent him a nice note, uh, reflecting on it, but I, I loved it. We, we should have him on the show to be honest yeah, with you okay. and ask him some of these questions because I think the other thing that stuck with me was how he, there's a couple scalped areas of the collars where he's mm. clearly expanding the green again. <laughs> and there's no, cont- like, I think a lot of clubs have fear of doing the wrong thing or screwing up. And sure, you don't want to just like willy-nilly change everything and try different things. But I, I feel like he's he's somewhat calculated in it and he's not afraid to do that. And I think that stems from the unique nature of this golf course where, you know, there's not the pressures of daily public play. There's not the pressures of a board seat or a president or a grounds committee that's going to really beat him up. I don't know that for certain, mm-hmm. but I just saw this like fearlessness of, you know what? 
we're going to try to this massive green with all these internal contours. And there's just one exterior contour that's not in play. Let's bring it in play. Mm-hmm. Let's get it in there. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to we're going to sculpt the green. The green right now doesn't look great in that spot, right? You're you're taking a risk yeah. by doing that. I learned that from the Canal Shore guys when we tried to expand some greens. It's a risk. It really is. That stuff can die very quickly when you expand greens, and um, and it's not easy. But he's not taking the easy route. He's just he, he. It's a little bit of a lab, but it's a very thoughtful expression of how a golf course should present and. Um, and it's not pretentious. It's not pretend. That's what always, that's what gets me under my skin with so many places where it is immaculately presented and it's, and there's pretension to that and there's mm-hmm. an ego to that and there's a status to that. This is not that. That's not what I'm talking about. This is, it, it's doing the right thing is what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Honestly, without regard to maybe the business element of it or the status element, of it, just doing the right thing because man, this is a, a a gem that needs to be shined. And, and he's been shining it for years now. So that's, yeah, let's have him on. Let's ask him some of those questions point blank. Because I'm just, I'm just extrapolating on my own experience. Don't know, you know, inside of his head. Yeah, that's absolutely do that. He definitely strikes me as someone that has agency in his job. And I think that's when the best work gets done. Anytime someone feels like they have agency to go after something and the protection that comes along with it, then that's when you see the special stuff. Yeah. I also played 18 holes in about two hours and 45 minutes. So that might've had something to do with my, (laughs) is there any, the heart, the heart was pumping, you know, I mean, it felt like a sport, Kevin. It felt like a sport. And how good does it feel when you get like, first, let me add a caveat here. I'm not saying we should rush through golf. I think, you know, playing fast just to play fast, I think is a mistake. And I'd rather play a four hour round in which I connect with those around me than an hour and a half round in which we don't connect and we're sprinting. So let me add that caveat, but it doesn't it feel so good when you walk off 18 holes and you look down the watch and it's like 240, 45. You felt like you were there for four. Oh, but like, you do. But like you walk off, you're like, wow, that filled me up. And it wasn't the typical four to five, six hour, you know, time suck that we do often get with golf. Yeah. The the replay, I know we talk about like the replay of a round. As I'm driving to to Chicago for the club championship after that round, it's like, the memories are every bit as vivid, maybe even more so than a six-hour round or a four-hour round. And I played in 245, but I had all the same memories, all the same shots, all the same field. Yeah, uh, I make the mistake of rushing too, and and that you got to be careful of that. But um, Yeah, it stems from our dads, I think. Both, <laughs> both, both of our dads are. Speaking of, I mean, today's topic, we, we – we, uh, I know you probably do. You have a fun fact for us. We're at a fifth. We're at an eighteen-minute intro already. This is, this I mean, is the type of episode I was hoping for. Hey, this is just a, a continuous episode, right? It's not like we're breaking into an interview. Yeah, I'll, I'll give one real quick, just to, to keep with the. Uh, my OCD will not be happy if we get through this without a fact of the day. So, <laughs> quick one. Um, you know, people know by now. I've probably said this seventeen times, but Huberman's a big. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and he had actually had a fascinating one on Chris Voss. Have you heard of that name before? I don't think so. It's a pretty popular name outside of the science world because uh, Chris Voss is a nego- um, a terrorist negotiator. Um, oh, yeah. Primary job. So, yeah. like, he's very – and also an entrepreneur of sorts and whatever. So, he's very big in the business world, very big in just um, how to talk to people and whatever. And, and so, it was on – it's literally, I think, a three-hour episode on – difficult conversations and ranging the gamut from like adversarial ones all the way to a difficult conversation you might have with your wife on where to eat, right? Those are difficult conversations. So running the whole gamut of, you don't have to think of difficult conversations just as a contentious one, but just a decision to be made, right? 
And one of the techniques uh, mentioned on it, it's actually a terrible interview technique for the style of research that I do because of power dynamics. You would never want to do this because they're just going to probably agree with you and be whatever. Um, but in a, the, well, let's do a simple version of just, hey, you know, we got to figure out we're going to road trip somewhere, right? Let's say me and you're going to go on a road trip and we're going to drive up to, I don't know, northern Michigan to play um, Kingsley. Um, rather than saying, hey, what route do you want to take? All right, which typically leads us to the where do you want to eat question, right? And it's like, oh, I don't know, whatever. And then you go back and forth for about 10 minutes and never make a decision. Actually play a hypothetical with the, the person you're talking with and, and try to peg it on how you think they are. So with you, you like you just mentioned, you, you rush sometimes. I could be like, yeah, man, I know you like, you like to be efficient on the road. So let's just take the interstate the whole way. You know, we'll get up there as quickly as, as, we, as we can. Um, and by doing that, actually, one, either you put you, one, it kind of, proposes a uh, decision, which which helps the conversation move. But more importantly, the way you do that in terms of the hypothetical with the person you're talking with, you give them an opportunity to correct you because people are more inclined to be vulnerable and open about their actual opinions if they think they're correcting you or agreeing with you, right? So like, you'd be like, actually, Kevin, I've been really this year working on not rushing through things. Let's take those state routes. And if we see a little nine-hole course, let's pop off and play it. So just giving you the opportunity to correct someone or giving someone the opportunity to correct you actually puts them in a position where they feel more disarmed and then willing to engage authentically, um, which is fascinating uh, as, a, as a technique to uh, anytime you're having a conversation with someone. And this can be used in any situation, even if they're you think someone, like I say, a coworker is really frustrated. Just say, hey, you know, you seem to be really, really frustrated, and I think it's for these reasons. Even if you're completely wrong, huh. that's actually, and he has a way to phrase that, like, it's not about being right, it's about getting them to talk. Yeah. Like, so you're not doing it to like, oh yeah, I got you pegged. It's like, no, you're just trying to open up the conversation. That, that That's interesting and timely. They, I actually am uh, reading a book or listening to an audio book. How do you feel about that? Can I, a quick aside, how do you feel when people say, I'm reading a book, but they're actually not reading it, they're listening huh. to it? I mean, tip, typically I have a quick take on stuff, right? And I, I've never I've never thought about, and I don't have a purist that you should read. I'm a purist and I only read, I never do audio books. Um, not for a Never, even reading. in the car? No, I don't, I just don't like, I just don't like it. It just doesn't, I, I space off. Um, is what happens with audiobooks. I literally will zone out for whatever. And I'm someone when I read, I I can speed read. I have that skill set. Not like great, but I, I've trained enough on it. Yeah. But I hate doing it because I want to read every word. It's just well, it, how I am. It, yeah, and, and I like having books. I don't have all the leather-bound books like you do back in your uh, uh, the, the video here if you're watching us online. But um, I am reading. I think I can say reading a book, by the way, when I'm yeah, listening I'm to it. Yeah, I'm good with it. So you read, that's fine. No, that's... here's my rule, but I have to own the book. So I can... Uh, so you own the hard copy. I have copy to have the ability to open... Yes. So I, I have this book. Now that's uh, ridiculous. <laughs> so this book, Kevin, and what you just said, it's very, very uh, uh, similar to to this mindset of nonviolent communication. Have you ever heard of mm, that mm -hmm, term? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Michael Rosenberg. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Michael Rosenberg wrote this and uh, I, I'm reading it because I, I got recommended to it from a friend with uh, just just different conversations, whether it's your spouse, your child. Um, I actually uh, recommended a friend by uh, who has children. It was actually comes from children, but it's so applicable to every relationship we have. And and the idea of non uh, 
violent communication is, is very similar to what you kind of said, which is, you know, instead of um, guessing or, or just put it out there and, and express your, what you observe, what you feel and what your need is. Mm-hmm. If you tell people what you need, that's a gift to them. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point where uh, you make a proposal and then they have the, they feel more comfortable to uh, correct you. Well, that's kind of the same thing. It's like most things that we're upset about in life is a, a need that's not being met. And so instead of reacting to it or, or trying to manipulate someone's behavior to, to uh, satiate whatever that need might be, just tell them what your need is. Mm-hmm. That's a gift to them. And they might tell you, I can't help you with your need because I got my own needs here or I got these other things. Um, that really resonated with me. So what you're kind of saying is is an extension of that in my mind of, uh, hey, d- d- throw it out there. Let 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 your idea get beat up. Let your your um, give those other people the opportunity to to correct you, like you said, or uh, to agree because that'll move the ball forward a heck of a lot further than I don't know what I want to eat. <laughs> no, that's a great yeah, and I think Chris Voss would I think he talked about that concept construct of nonviolent was it nonviolent communication or what a nonviolent communication yeah and he he has a form he calls tactical empathy is a form within that that he uses that and that's what this is all based on right and another one to your point of like telling what you need is also jumping in what other telling what other people what they need to and mm. the whole you know like let's say you're gonna fire someone right what's the typical thing oh how's your day going you try to like he's like no that's pointless that's worthless like first prime prime someone like you know, day or two in advance, hey, I need to talk to you tomorrow. Um, got some stuff I don't, you're not going to like, but we need to talk about it, right? And then just jump right into it because doing the whole soft thing, you're not helping them. You're only helping yourself. You're only trying to help yourself. And yeah. uh, like you said, like- Be direct. Help, yeah, be direct, help people out. Um, people are adults. I mean, there's a great, um, Nico shared, it was in Moneyball. Um, great comment about Brad Pitt with uh, Jonah Hill talking about firing someone. And it's true, like- we're, they're, everybody's adults. Like, don't need to treat, treat people with kid gloves sometimes, and it's actually a mistake to do that. Yeah, yeah, you're here. Uh, great fun fact. Thanks to True Temper, before we go on any more in this episode, I need to thank our uh, presenting sponsor of today's podcast, True Temper, the number one shaft in golf. They will be with us coming up next, this week, actually, when this episode releases, Kevin, we'll be at Big Cedar Lodge for the 2023 Founders Cup. Oh. We have our captains, uh, Harry of Chicago and Andy, uh, Captain Andy from St. Andrews of the International, National, and Atlanta team. Uh, They have a bit of a rivalry that grew out of the pilgrimage in July. And um, the two of them had their pairings head-to-head yesterday on on this actual screen right here. I was um, um, being the mediator for, for that. And I'm telling you, I have never been excited for a Founders Cup the competition as much as I am for this one, just because these two characters are, couldn't be more different mm-hmm. at all, at all. But it, it's certainly not the, uh, well, how I say it, the Ryder Cup of Zach Johnson and, and Luke Donald, you know, two very mild mannered gentlemen. These guys are, are out for, for the title and, and they're not afraid to play some psychological warfare on each, on each other, um, n- knowing a little bit about about the other. So I, I had so much fun on that call and, and we're playing Chapman matches at top of the rock to get us started. We're doing uh, the four ball matches at Payne's Valley. And then the singles matches are at Ozark national, but Chicago's, you know, down, they've been down. Oh, they've been struggling. 
and Harry's trying to, to right that ship and turn it around. So true temper, then this is really cool. The people at True Temper, also great competitors, awesome guys. Uh, Don Brown, who, who's kind of our main point contact with True Temper, he went undefeated at last year's Founders Cup and brought, you know, you could say that one point differential brought the Atlanta national and international team the title, the cup. Mm-hmm. He specifically requested to play for Team Chicago and bring that cup home. I know, I know. So. Talk about ballsy though. Talk about ballsy. Yeah. Said like I want it on my back. I want it on my back. And so the, he, the two representatives from he Team walks Temper, tall. He walks tall. They're they're joining Team Chicago and they're trying to win that cup. I gotta say, I put out I pulled out the persimmon the last couple of weeks. Played exclusively persimmon, and, um, some national customs irons. I got a, a four of them and one wedge and a putter. So was that six clubs I've been playing with for the last couple of weeks. And I've got a true temper steel shaft and that persimmon driver. And man, does that thing feel good? And does it whip good? Oh, that, What's feeling the, that, feeling it, that shaft it, in a driver head. Is it more flex than your normal driver? I think so. I, I, I haven't frequency matched it or anything like that. I, I assume it has to be. And just the way it whips through with that persimmon head and you feel that little vibration in the shaft and everything. Oh, that's that's one of I, the best best feeling shafts out there. Because you need more flexion with the launch angle, right? I mean, of your modern equipment, you can go with a stiffer shaft because it's going to launch higher, but you probably need more flex, don't you? Uh, I would presume. I'm definitely not an expert on that stuff. Um, You would think you would need a little bit more flex because you just, I don't know, I definitely can't put as much speed on that club. I know that for, you know, my speed's down with it a little bit, especially just trying to hit the sweet spot because you miss by a little bit, you miss by a lot. Yeah. Well, I think that's a that's a pretty good segue into what you and I have been chatting about over years of time. I think this episode, one, one reason you're already probably listening and wondering, oh, it's a little bit different. We're not having a guest on today. But I, I think a lot of the value, Kevin, and this is just a reflection on our friendship, is the conversations we've had on a deeper level that always start in golf and end somewhere else. I mean, I think we've we've done that on this show multiple times. I think we've done that with multiple guests that kind of force us to learn something, force us to look at something slightly differently. And and I swear, I always get done with our podcast and I go, kind of how does that apply to, to life? Uh, recently, I'm thinking about um, Kevin Murphy, who we just had mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Heck, we learned a ton about golf course architecture and what a firm actually does. But what was our biggest takeaway? It was how did mentors in his life mm-hmm. You know, help him get to the next level, and it made me reflect on: Am I being a good mentor? And I being a good boss, and things. So I, I don't know. I'm just I'm saying this uh, as a preface to what you and I wanted to talk about because a lot of this stuff I think has circled around uh, the enjoyment of golf. Yeah. You know how to best get live your best golf life, which in a way I think is the deeper meaning behind New Club is to live a happier, healthier golf life. Um, and uh and life but that doesn't just happen like you know our conversations have always kind of led to some ideas that have rolled out into both new club and and conversations and everything else so i was hoping today to circle around the concept of what is a happy golfer like what is being a happy golfer? what does that even mean you have all these self-help books out there to be a better golfer to shoot lower scores or you have you know a, a lot of things geared around you know, the next thing, but is there any real material out there on the, the satisfaction or I don't even call it satisfaction, the, 
that the happiness that we derive from golf. I mean, we, you and I wouldn't host a, a, a podcast on this game if we didn't get some level of that joy from it, uh, whether it's talking about the game or playing the game. And so I was hoping to talk with you today because frankly, and this will lead to my question for you, I've known you for a lot of your life, a lot of your golf life, and I've actually really respected when you were down and out and kind of falling away from the game, how you recognized it, took your time, changed course, did something differently. And, and you, when you did come back to it, you always, I view you as a very happy golfer. And, I, and not in the sense that like, oh, Kevin's always happy. That's not the case. I view you as a very happy golfer because you recognize when you're not, or you recognize, and, and a lot of us, I think, get stuck in our path of that's the way it's always done, or this is what mm -hmm. golf is supposed to be, or, or what have you. And I, I, I just always respected that you're not afraid to pause for a second and go, whoa, something's not right. I don't think, I will, I'm, I don't think I'm gonna do this. And, and, um, and it's always led me to think about my own golf and my own pursuit of goals and, and things that, am I on the right path? Am I in the right direction? So I, I just want to start with, with you, sir. I hope you don't take that, uh, in, in a, I don't know. I don't know how you take it, but I wanted to ask just, just when were you the happiest as a golfer? You know, when you reflect on your time, uh, what, what really was the time that, that you were enjoying it the most? Gosh. I think that that's, it's a hard question for, uh, well, at least two primary reasons that come to my mind right now. One is like, I don't remember a lot of childhood, right? It's hard to like, a childhood's always idyllic in retrospect. We think of our childhood as this perfect thing. And so I think, oh, golf was amazing, whatever. I played mom and dad, friends. And surely it was. I mean, grew up going to the golf course 7 a.m., play 18 holes, go to the pool. Um, yes, a very white privileged country club upbringing. Go to the pool, then go play 18 more and blah, 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 right? So like, Certainly amazing days, probably the yeah. happiest. Like that, that, that life's hard to be. Like, yeah, you're 16 and you're doing that, right? So that, that's that, that's a different form of happiness when you're at a, 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 a cognitive level where you can reflect on and break things apart. So like, yeah, when have I been happiest? You know, there, there's small scale events like the Scotland trip with dad and seeing... There's moments of happiness that are unparalleled. Seeing dad break down at the new golf club at that dinner, right? And being on that golf trip with you all and then having that dinner with Captain Ronnie and just everything that meant for me that was supposed to be getting married there, that was supposed to be a wedding trip and reflecting on that, um, what it represented for our new club, just in terms of it was a pivotal moment. It was a sort of, okay, we, we made it in the sense of like we're a permanent fixture now and like we, we mean something and we're on the right track relationship with the new golf club, all of that from a specific instance, definitely one of the happiest moments uh, of my life in terms of just a moment. Mm -hmm. Now on the broader scale, like, which is, it's been both a blessing and a curse. I'd have to say like 2018, the fostering of the relationship with Sweetens Cove. And by that, I mean the people in the course, right? Uh, First time there and being brought up spirit courses and walking down that first hole and being like, there's a connection here, right? Mm -hmm. It's just something different. And then over time, you know, so I'll say it this way, over time, 
everything I experienced with Sweeten's Cove, and again, I mean, not just the course, but the people that are now some of my dearest friends. I just spent three days with food poisoning, but rooming with John Allen, and it was a wonderful three days because I got to pick his brain and hear about SM, his time at SMU in the 80s and everything else that he's involved with and, and that, right? So, like, permanent happiness every time I'm around that, that group of individuals. Um, mm-hmm. That's it just, they fill me up. Trey Moon, Jim Hartzell, um, Andrew Davidson, Adamski, Rob, uh, all of them. Um, so, but that's, there's a catch there, right? That that's actually created unhappiness in other areas of golf because I have that experience in those people. And I think you're, you're to, to not preclude you, you're part of this too in the new club crew that represents the same ethos. Um, Anytime I'm outside of that now, there's less happiness, right? Like there was a time, even during that Sweden Scope time, where I was chasing golf courses, not in the bucket list way, but in the like, you know, people had gotten me into golf architect, golf course architecture at the time, and I was just trying to consume to learn, right? And I loved going to Essex County Club. I loved going to, you name awesome golf course in America, unfortunately, those awesome places are typically private. So, you know, it wasn't me checking it off because I wanted to do a top 100 private club. It was, I wanted to learn about architecture and the best golf architecture is almost exclusively outside of the Culver's of the world in the Sweetens Cove, um, private. Yep. Um, so at the time I loved it, but over time I've become predisposed to not love that. Like I still enjoy it, but every time I'm there, there's a level of unhappiness that's like, why can't we have more of this available to the general golf population? Um, so, yeah, there's a happiness brings breeds unhappiness. I think there's some there's some science behind that that you only have happiness without with the counter of that, and it just makes them yes. more it makes them more salient, right? That it's the whole everybody that goes to, if I meet a person that goes to 200 golf courses, like it was great, it was great, it was great. It's like, sorry, we speak a different language because not everything can be great. To have great, you have to have ungreat. And yeah. That's, God, you, you hit on a bunch of the things that, that my thoughts have circled around. Community, um, the, 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 the pursuit of goals and, and attainment, you know, more. Mm. Um, I, I, I wanted to, to get a little bit more from you, though, on the, the flip side, right? The, the least happy stuff. Like, well, I guess, I guess you've already touched on it. Is it, instead of ask that, let me ask, when you found yourself, maybe I'll take the example of pursuing those golf courses. You are pursuing it to, to learn, which obviously I know you as an academic, you are very happy when you're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you'd, you'd be bored out of your mind if you weren't learning things, which is probably something that's happened to you in golf as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I think architecture really helps people that are avid learners and, and like, you know, to have an education, but does, does your life parallel those moments? I don't want to say moments, those, those time frames when you're, you're really a happy golfer. Are you a happy person when you're a happy mm-hmm. golfer? I'd have to say, yeah, I can't think of a time when I had a good relationship with golf like, I'll define that, you know, a, a several month span where I'm always happy with the game and I want to get out and play and I'm getting out and playing it. Like there's, I don't think there's ever been a time that I've been unhappy in life, but happy in golf. 
I've used now I have used golf as an outlet to get away from other things. But by using it as outlet, like I get out on the course, I'm like, wait, this is fun. Life isn't so bad. Like if I'm in such a place that when things are bad, I get to come to the course and enjoy it. That means things aren't that bad, right? Like if if I get to go out, so like it's a reset and it quickly makes me re- like refocus on, okay, what are my problems in life? I mean, I went through a divorce. Divorce, it was an amicable divorce, right? There was, you know, it was emotionally rough, but it was as smooth as a divorce could go. And even though it was smooth, it sucked. Like it was an emotional tear. But golf gave me that place to go to, to just say like, okay, as bad as this is, you're still at a place you get to do this and live this way. So pick yourself up, let yourself hurt, right? Embrace the hurt. Um, my wife and I, we both went through divorce. It's called it just some, like embrace the suck. Like it's going to suck. And you just, you get through it and you look for the things that get you through. And golf was one of those things for me. So yeah, I'd have to say happy in golf. I'm happy in life. I think the the contrapositive you could do like, okay, if I'm, unhappy in life and I am I unhappy in golf and that's where I settle on golf being an outlet to get me back now if I'm unhappy in golf am I unhappy in life yeah when I don't have a great relationship with golf like normally there's some aspect that I carry that into life the one exception being when I'm passionate about my work like when I go on a work dive it can replace golf um, mm-hmm. as an assistant professor there was that I loved what my work just pat like I still love my work. Let's be clear, but I was passionately in love with my work. And I'm actually in a run right now. The last two or three months, I've been passionately in love with my work. And I've been four o'clock. I typically cut out, go hit range balls, and I've been like, nah, it's work till six. Um, so, but if there's not something filling it, and I'm not in love with golf, then there's something missing in my life. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I think I've said in the past, you know, the golf is the the mirror and the looking glass. And it can kind of give you insight to what's going on. And I think about stints that I don't play much golf and I get back out there. And I'll just use the example of bad uh, negative self-talk. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll be out there and I'll, I'll hit a couple, you know, squirrely shots and I'll hear myself actually say something to myself uh, of, of criticism of like, you, you dummy, you idiot, what a terrible shot or where that come, you know. And then... I, I've had enough experience now thinking about this stuff that I actually catch myself and reflect on say, um, boy, I was really, I was pretty rude to myself there. That was not a nice thing. Would I ever say that to Kevin? Would I ever say that to Mark or anybody else I'm playing with? No, I wouldn't say that. Why did I say it to myself? And then I say, you said something like that to yourself inside about 18 times today. I forgot to send that follow-up. I, I screwed mm. up the monthly medal registration. I I did just criticisms, right? And so I just use that as an example that if I go weeks of not playing golf, and me and my wife talk about this because this has to do with, with happiness and being a better uh, person yourself. If I go too long without playing, I lose that looking glass or that mirror element of what's going on, you know, how you doing? And and I, I wish there was something else. Like to hear you say that you have your, it just does, does your work do that for you though, Kevin? Like, is there, is there, does it, is that ability? Because for me, it doesn't. I, I need to, to get out and, and have the thing that I have a lot of points of reference with, I think is, is the other thing too, is golf 
I, I've played for as long as I can remember. So it is that ma- that big point of reference for me. But it always kind of wakes me up of that check-in. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just that check-in with like, how you doing? And that's just one example of probably hundreds that I, I run into. Like rushing, you brought that up at the top of the show. I can easily... I get out there and if I'm rushing around the golf course, I, I, I have this aha usually like six or seven holes in that goes, you know, for the last week and a half, I've been rushing with my wife, with my children. I've been rushing through dinner. I'm, I'm in a big rush mode right now. I should take a breath. Mm-hmm. I should just do that. I should do that right now on this tee and I should do this right now when I get home. And, and nothing else does, does that for me than golf, nothing. Let me ask you, I want to circle back on what you brought about work. What do you what do you love about the work you do? Like what are the oh. things you love about the work you do? Um I I love that it it brings happiness to others. And I I I think in the moment I lose track of that, but stuff like last week's club championship and seeing 16 really happy people at the dunes club that'll give me energy for six months you know it's it's stuff like that so the the yeah the joy of others do you feel when you have those experiences with work that there's a parallel to a good golf round Mm. or a soulful golf round like when you're having that, that you know, you're at the club championship and those, what, two, was a day and a half or two and a half days, like that experience there, which you're not playing, right? That's, yeah. Do you feel like there's a parallel to, to a soulful golf round? Yes. I think in the execution of uh, those events or the thing you're doing work-wise, yes. Um, also, where my mind just went was preparation. <laughs> Mm-hmm. just like doing the work prior makes those moments happen and makes that happen. And golf is the same way, right? If you, if you prepare, uh, for the course of the round and, you know, stretch and practice and stuff, you, you're going to probably execute better. So that, that's, I thought about that as a parallel, but, but no, I, I don't think I, I have that, uh, that introspection though, from my work, if that makes sense. Right. I, I don't think I can, I, like I said, check in and catch myself. I, I don't think I get that from from work or, uh, geez, any other hobby or any other pursuit. I just feel like golf is the only thing that gives me that check-in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the things work, I think, is for me, work has helped me think about golf. And You know, we're, we're incredibly fortunate as faculty that we really do get to di- dictate our own job. Certainly, we have classes we have to teach, right? But we group negotiate who's teaching what. Um, there's Squeeze some in a little podcast to host on the side. Well, yeah, a little podcast to host on the side. It's, you know, we obviously have some service that we need to do, the you know running programs and that sort of stuff. But by and large, this job is completely unstructured and non-boss related that you get to dictate. And so, one of the things I've learned through work because I've I've had some dark days at work is thinking about like what do I love about the job. And then making sure I'm incorporating that intentionally into the job. And then I'm giving my hours to do that. Because when I do that, that's when I find myself like right now where I'm very passionate about it. And I just want to, I want to get up at 6 a.m. and I want to go to work. And I want to just work, spend those first five hours doing the things I love, if it's writing or whatever. 
And, and through that journey with work, I think it's helped me identify on the golf side to think about the same way. Like when I'm not happy about golf, it's probably because I'm not giving a certain aspect of golf the time it needs. And I'm focusing on other things, whatever those could be. That could be, you know, I've had my love and hate relationship with competitive golfers focus on score, my love and hate relationship with the country club I'm involved with and it's in its dynamics, right? Love and hate relationship with American golf versus Scottish golf. And so always, which stand I mentioned early in the pod, the, the persimmon, you know, um, four irons, a wedge and a putter. I was like, okay, I've, I've fallen out of love a little bit right now. I'm not real happy with golf. I'm really focused on like, was it a good shot or bad shot? I'm getting unhappy with bad shots. Like scores aren't doing anything. Well, let's remove all of that and just go to six or seven clubs and let's have fun. Let's just like go out there and hit them for the, the love of it, right? Um, and try to like re-inject that, that back in. And I think that's one of the things I didn't learn that through golf, actually. I learned that through sort of my just disengagement with work I had for a little bit uh, and what caused that one at the end of the day. I'm like, no, like I could have blamed the institution. I could have blamed my colleagues. I could have blamed COVID. I could have blamed so many other things. It's like, wait, no, you have complete control of your job. Take control of it and like, you know, do the things you love. And if, you know what, if that backfires, well, at least you try you backfire doing the things you love. And um, that's a better place to be than doing things you don't love per- perpetually. I, I definitely see a parallel with the folks that are willing to play with the half set, the folks that are willing to put the hickories in the bag, play with some dated equipment or... Um, there's a, there's so many elements to that actually that we could go into about increasing the difficulty of an already difficulty difficult game and and why would you do that to be a happy golfer you yeah know, what, yeah what? Diff, difficulty yeah that's to be a great thing to dive into but uh, but I knew this name was going to come up today and I don't know if you're familiar with Arthur Brooks who's out there like quite a bit right now because he's releasing a book with Oprah <laughs> um, but he's do you know. You know Arthur Brooks? Loosely, but go on. I know you've been you've been really passionate about um, about this and Arthur's work. Yeah, so he's a professor of happiness at Harvard University, and that's actually his title, professor of happiness. And so he's a, a social scientist or, or psychologist, social psychologist who uh, studies uh, happiness. And so much of what you said, like just starting with the four main components, faith, which is interesting. We can get into that, what that might mean for someone who is non-secular or you know, not religious, uh, but faith, family, friends, and work. Mm. And already we've hit on all four of those really mm-hmm. and everything that you uh, mentioned and about Sweetens and, and your uh, relationships and, and your, your marriage and, uh, and then your work. Uh, uh, we didn't really touch on faith, which that, that could be a whole nother bucket of it. But, um, but there has to be a belief in something, I think is what that boils down to. Uh, but this guy, I, I just, I, I knew he was going to come up because there was so much of what he talks about in that happiness isn't a uh, destination, which I think it, in most of our minds, yeah. it is like unhappy, uh, bad, happy, good. Uh, happy is just a direction. It's just, it's just the way that you, you would like to move your day, move your life, and um, and I think that really resonates with me of of. Uh, you mentioned criticism on, on shots, right? And, and I'll, I'll just reflect on my own. I, I don't want to uh, uh, assume what you're, what you're trying to say, but uh, in my own world, the unhappiest I was, and I had, I had basically two main stints. 
that lasted a, a, quite a long time. But in, in college, I became a very unhappy golfer. Um, and, uh, and then kind of right after that became a very happy golfer and Ireland helped me get out of that funk. And then we'll talk about the culture there, which we always do on this show. Uh, and then the other one was, uh, as a young professional, making more money than I ever did, becoming exceptionally unhappy in golf and, uh, exceptionally unhappy in life actually. And so those, those two stints were my unhappy stints and they, they both lasted for considerable couple years. And, uh, and they were very different. They were so different, Kevin. But one, one area, and I'll just start with the earlier one. I wanted to talk about the college days that you were mm. squarely a part of. And I think that's why you and I always get into these deeper conversations is because we were uh, audience members for each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so we, we all think we know what happened, but sometimes I like to throw this stuff out there because you got to see it you know, firsthand as my teammate and roommate um, with some of these things. But I think there's a very relatable element of golf, which is envy. I was in a rabbit hole of growing up, playing the game, getting pretty good, whatever. But I started to look at golf swings and the internet mm. became a thing, right? And you could, you could uh, YouTube golf swings and see the perfect golf swing online. And all the coaches of that day were putting, you know, Tiger's swing right up next to yours and doing all the oh, yeah. lines and stuff. And, uh, and then I'd go to tournaments and I'd walk down the range and be like, God, that guy's swing is so good. It's so good. And I think there is a difference, and Arthur Brooks talks about this, there's a difference between envy and admiration. Admiration is, is wonderful, right? It's appreciating someone's yeah. greatness. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really celebrating that person. Uh, and I think I had some of that admiration for sure. But when I would look at somebody and say they hit it longer, they hit it straighter, they have better short game, a lot of it was malignant envy. It was a nasty, nasty thing. It was kind of in somehow insinuating that that person doesn't deserve that good short game or deserve to be longer and that I somehow did. And, uh, and I think just combining a bunch of different ideas here, it's referred to as a language of criticism. I think we were all born with a language of criticism. I think I, I see w one area that I'm conscious of criticism today and that that really good versus bad is golf course architecture. And I try to really catch myself of like, just because this is different or what have you doesn't necessarily make it bad. So I'd like to hear your take on that because I find that those that are critics tend to be less happy, myself included, myself included. And a great example, and everybody listening can probably relate to this, 78 good, 82 bad. What, you know, like the score thing mm. is so squarely in the sights, isn't it? Of I, if I shoot a certain number that starts with a seven, it's good. Or starts with a six, it's good. Or starts with an eight, it's good. But if it starts with a nine or it's three digits, it's bad. And, and I think that's a tough thing to, to be a happy golfer. Um, what, what give me your, give me your impression on the criticism element because I, I I've heard you now a couple times and and as an academic as somebody who does like to explore you know what is a correct answer and what's not do you ever see that pitfall in in golf uh, do you see yourself falling into because I just know myself and I've definitely hit that that language of criticism way too many times yeah where to start with that I think. I think one of the broader points to make 
that maybe will help me frame an answer to that. Like there's a difference between criticism and critique, right? So I think your point about like, you know, I nitpick stuff, definitely, especially when it comes to golf and country club opera. Like I am a nitpicker. I am I'm also someone that like, if something's being done, I'm going to look at it and say, where can it be done better? Where can it be done better? Like when I'm reviewing a student's dissertation or thesis drafts, right? Like I'm a terrible mentor in that I don't always highlight the great places and say, oh, this was great. I tried to, I tried to, but I'm not, that's not my natural inclination. My natural inclination is to like, what do you mean here? This isn't clear. Like, is this what you're trying to say? This isn't consistent with this. Like it's the focus on that. Um, Part of that is because I'm a firm believer that's showing respect, right? The fact I'm engaging with your work at that level is be, just showing you I care. If you get a document back that's like, oh yeah, this is fine. That's that's a bigger warning sign. That's actually a sign of disrespect, right? Because so, okay, criticism is just tearing stuff down, right? That's all it is. Just focus, it's just being negative for being negative sake and just, you can call it outcome-based, right, in golf or whatever. It's just like, oh, that was a terrible shot, right? There's nothing useful with that. There's nothing actionable. It's like, oh, you're bad, right? That's bad. It doesn't give you anything. We're critiquing is different. Like if I go to a golf course, I might hate it from a critique-like perspective. I just played mountain golf courses. The thing I say about mountain golf courses, some places just aren't meant to have golf. <laughs> Someone from a criticism perspective, some from a criticism perspective, someone might interpret me as saying that's a terrible experience. I was unhappy, right? Well, they should blow that golf course up. No, not at all. What I from the critique, okay, if you're like, if you punted that back to me, I'd say, no, no, that's not what I mean at all when I make the statement of like someplace. What I'm saying is the architect could not design a great golf course here. That was the cards that were dealt. It's impossible to design a great golf course here, unless you spent maybe a hundred million dollars and you freaking scalp mountaintops and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you just, it's just not possible. I had a blast the whole week, even with food poisoning, but there's bad golf holes. And like, to me, like I have happiness by engaging in that critique and thinking about that, right? And saying, where could this been better? And again, that's also saying, well, it could have been better here, but it was impossible to be better, right? Like being transparent about that, like I'm not blaming the architect. I'm not blaming the builders at all. This was the cards that were dealt and you're just you're just stuck with it, right? So I think that's a big difference between critique and criticism, which relate taking to our own golf game. You and I both definitely in college were, were criticism oriented. Like we were bad golfers. Like, you know, and... Was that our fault? Was that our coach's fault? Us not being mature enough? We fed into each other. Like all of the above were accurate, right? Um, we're, we're culpable as much as our, well, I would argue less than our coach, but like we're culpable in it too. Yeah. We weren't, it'd been different critique, but like, well, gosh, that was, I dumped a four iron in the water there. That's a terrible golf shot. Why did it happen? Right? Like, how can I be better? And what, and that's what we, that's what we were missing in college golf. We never, and there were, again, good reasons for that, like why we didn't care to get better and why we didn't try to get better. But we were stuck in the criticism, not the critique aspect of walking off, right? And I would argue our coach was a criticism person. Never once did he show us a way or help us find a way to get better. 
Um, I'm sure in his own way he was trying. 100% he was trying. He, he cared. Um, why he cared, I don't know, but he definitely cared. Uh, but like it was just criticism oriented. And I think that for both of us, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, we can do the hypothetical Chris Voss thing. Like, I think we both turned into criticism players in golf. And maybe yours was tied to that ego aspect or the envy aspect as well. Or mine was more of a self-shame aspect for sure. It was definitely a feeling shameful of like, I'm supposed to be a college player. I'm playing with other guys that I want to respect me and I can't break 76 no matter how well I play. And there was a, there was a level of shame to that. Hmm. I, I, I want to extrapolate on that because that is quite, quite profound in, in putting into the, the frame of, of critique versus criticism. Cause I'm hundred percent with you now. The, the criticism mindset, it, it definitely it took over. And, and I think there's a couple ways to go uh, from it. And I think the ego took me into a place, and I'll actually flip this to a, a positive, my most profound year of probably self-exploration and development and growth was 2005. Uh, I, I went to Ireland and uh, learned a lot about myself, learned uh, found golf, left golf, ran from golf almost. Uh, and, and to be clear to the audience, spring. you didn't just go to Ireland for like a, a week. You were over there studying abroad, right? Yeah, studying for the year. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm going to jump past that because I know I bring that up a lot. But uh, uh, who is it that made fun of me for bringing up Ireland all the time? Uh, oh, Bruce, Bruce Devlin. Devlin. Bruce Devlin, yeah. Multi, should be multi-major winner, Bruce Devlin. Um Tell us more about Matt, about Ireland, Matt. <laughs> um, but uh, but the best coach I ever had, and I only had him. I never played a actual competition round for this gentleman. But the best coach I ever had was Donnie Dar, and there's no surprise that Donnie Dar is a very inspirational person for a lot of really successful golfers: Ricky Fowler, Victor Hovland, Matthew Wolf. Uh, he he left the University of Akron, went to Oklahoma State to be the assistant. The man has beat cancer yeah. and continues to that, like high past like stage cancer, right? Like it was it was at a stage that was touch and go. Yes, and and raises a, a beautiful family with I believe four kids and and just cares for his his players as much as he does. Uh, I shouldn't say his children, but he cares for them like children. And hmm. he was. Uh, he was an antidote for what happened to me, which even when I came back from this very spiritual eye-opening experience in Ireland, and I didn't know if I was going to rejoin the team, but I, I had a defense mechanism to uh, this language of criticism led me to an ego and a defense mechanism that I just told myself, I am better. I am longer. I am stronger. I am mm. a better short game. And I just said that. And you know what? It worked. And on the surface, I think a lot of people um, do that. And it does work temporarily. But it, what, what Donnie Dar helped me realize, and it was a very, I, I just God, vividly remember the conversation in his office where he just helped me realize I'm, I'm lying to myself. And, he, and, he, and he, said, he said it in a way that wasn't critical. Hmm. Uh, but it was direct. <laughs> a lot of the kind of communication methods we were talking about, nonviolent communication, where he just said, like, you're not, but you could be. And you know why I know that? 
because you're you're not longer than this guy on the team. You're not uh, uh, better in the gym than this guy on the team. You're um, you're not a better putter than than this guy on the team. You're not. You're telling yourself you are, but you're not. But the reason I know you could be, and the reason I know that, and he just gave me a bunch of uh, reasons because because you are one of the hardest working dudes I've ever seen. You'll you'll play beer pong till four a.m. and you'll be the first here at six a.m. and you're ready to go. And I and that's dedication and <laughs> you know maybe some bad. Life choices, but it's dedication. <laughs> That's college. And it, yeah, and he and he was was this guy that really woke me up and showed me the difference between um, perceived conf- confidence or mm. phony confidence and an authentic confidence. And the only authentic confidence that comes in this world is from putting the work in and preparation and uh, uh, just just doing doing the little things over and over and over again. And that that yes, you do need to have good self-talk. Yes, you do need to build yourself up from time to time, but, but not, don't lie to yourself, mm. you know, be, be realistic with where you're at and, and go from there. And that conversation and why I, I jumped to it was the next level of me being the happiest I've been as a golfer and as a person where I no longer had to kind of make excuses for myself or tell myself one thing or another I just had a a more resilient confidence brought back into my life, and um, so I yeah, just just reflecting on Donnie Tar, what like an incredible guy, and and there's no there's no surprise that he's coached the guys that he has, and they've gone on to do what they've done. Would you say Donnie? Is this an accurate frame? Donnie, Donnie to me, uh, and unfortunately, I never got to experience Donnie as a coach. Uh, I was there for that one year, you know, on the sidelines, and got to engage with Donnie. And I was, I was very—I'll use the word you use—envious of you all, you know, having someone like that. Um, everything you said, and some other of the teammates have said, and my experiences, you know, secondhand with Donnie struck me. Believe that Donnie was very honest, but asset oriented. So like in your case, right? Like what I hear there is like, well, here's the things you do really, really well here. And those are the things that will help you get where you want to be. You're not there. Like, I'm going to be honest with you. You're not, you're not there. You're no, you're none of these things, mm-hmm. but here's the assets you have of why you could be those things. So focusing on like, Hey, here's the qualities of you and how you go about things that actually can help you. you that's now set realistic goals and tap into the things that can let you accomplish those. those. Cause it's really easy to set goals and never consider like, am I capable of these? What about me can help me go after these? And those are the impossible goals to get after, even if they look realistic. Like you have to think about like, okay, what is my skill set and what can what can I actually do? And it sounds like Donnie was real about that with you. I think real, real is that's a good way to put it. Also, it lacked judgment. It mm. was just observations. Mm. And it it started to take that language of criticism that I had for myself, for my golf game and, and shift it into just an observation. I think you hear that in a lot of mindfulness practice. So yeah. don't, don't connect with your, uh, you are not your feelings. You know, you're not, but observe them. Say, wow, that's interesting. This really gets me upset. I get really upset in these situations or I get really nervous on the first tee. That's interesting. Let's observe that. Let's watch that. Let's figure out what that is about. What, what stems from that? Is it you know, am I thinking about the outcome? And, and, and the observations don't, don't chip away at that confidence in a way. So yeah, I, I think he was very honest and real and, and um, just observed more than judged. 
I want to fast forward to the second unhappiness. Let's, let's go back to unhappy. Um, somewhat selfishly. Can, can we, actually, can I can I hit the the happy golfer real quick and bring yeah. it back to yeah. So so Ireland, a couple of things happened. Uh, it was competitive. So the story goes, and I've said it a hundred times, but didn't bring my clubs over there. Trying to play Gaelic sports, getting the crap kicked out of me. They're like, dude, I heard you can you're play scrawny, golf. Man. Stop, you, stop you, trying you, to play this you game. You can't. Yeah, you're way too scrawny to play any of their sports. <laughs> yeah, so this dude named Graham, who's uh, now a physician, he, I, I was trying to, to catch back up with him. I found him online. I'm gonna, We're going to get him on the show because I'd love to know what his golf life – because he was a very happy golfer. But he got me into to the golf club, and uh, the competition was there. And I, I realized that I need it. But it doesn't have to be about this good, bad language of criticism. It's mm. match play had so much to do with it, Kevin. I've match just, play wasn't about the perfect shot anymore. It was about the situational shot. It was about the right one, the good choice. You know, it was good enough. I made a five, but he made a six. Mm-hmm. I'm one up. Match play helped me so much become a happier golfer. And this, this next part I wanted to bring up um, well, it was adventurous because we played a lot of new courses. I think there's something there with novelty mm. and, and the challenge, like you putting hickories in your bag and persimmon. I think that has a lot to do with our enjoyment and our happiness. So new golf courses are similar in that way. It's a new strategy, a new challenge. That had a lot to do with my happiness. But here's one that we've we've circled around a couple of times. I just wanted to bring it up before uh, we, we move forward. Social. The golf was social. And I always golf's an individual sport and and it's it's a it's an individual pursuit and you can beat balls on the range all day by yourself you can even play the game by yourself you don't need someone to hit the ball back and forth with or guard you you can just go play it and and i think i've always retreated to golf in an individual sense but the thing that ireland taught me was it is it is at its heart maybe the most social game and and that is good for your well-being and good for um for your happiness and and uh, arthur brooks actually has a whole thing around this that it, it's um i'll probably forget exactly what it what it means but uh it clicked with me when i heard it it made me reflect on this time in ireland where yeah, you're playing the match, but you're, you're getting to know people. And then afterwards is as much important as the match itself. Like you got to sit at the pub. If you skip out at the pub afterwards, like that is a cardinal sin for those guys because mm-hmm. that's the time that you put your arms around each other, your opponent, and you get to know them and you learn about their family and you learn about the other things that they do. And, and that really resonated with me because we never did that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we did it over a long period of time, but you're trying to kick the snot out of the guys that you're playing with and you don't really care about them in that sense. Well, Ireland taught me that that social element is and something that the social psychologist Arthur Brooks said was everything needs to, if you are pursuing things individually for uh, for pleasure, it will not bring happiness. Hmm. And I think I, I get stuck in that with golf. Um, he talks about that in terms of addiction too. Uh, People with drinking problems very rarely are social drinkers. They're drinking uh, at home alone and uh, or sitting at the bar alone. And, and the social elements is very important to the pursuit of happiness. And, uh, and I never really took that into to account when I would pursue my happiness in golf. And now, guess what? It's always at the forefront. 
Mm. And, and I always try. And yeah, there's like a meditative mindfulness element. This round I had at Culver was a very different, you know, on my own type of thing. But I never gave the importance to golf of, of who you play with. And, and frankly, that discovery led a lot to what New Club is all about. And if you get people with, you know, kind-spirited, golf-minded intentions together, it delivers a joy and a happiness that is really hard to obtain on your own. So I did just want to say, I just had to hit no. on that because because I, I never clicked with me till recently. Like, what was it in Ireland that really flipped me and made me the happiest I've ever been? Yeah, that, that just makes me think of my comment about the, the Sweetens Cove crew too and what that's meant to me in terms of, because I, I have this tension, and I've talked with this about Garrett a little bit, and Garrett makes this point too. Like, there's versions of me that around by myself, like, again, in terms of moments where I'm the happiest, there's definitely been times I've been by myself playing a golf round, and there's just some, some soulful, meditative, whatever, higher power, spiritual sense that, that I get sometimes. And that could be on my home course here in Athens. It would be anywhere. Um, so I definitely believe golf by yourself is a wonderful thing and, and this is not to preclude happiness from that, but yeah, I don't know if there's anything better than, you know, playing with not like-minded people. Cause within the Sweetens group, we've got different ideologies. I mean, yeah, I, I don't like that like, term like-minded, but yeah. there's something like, there's something about the way we gel and what we're there and the things, you know, like there's just something about it that it makes it bigger than the golf round that you're, you're sharing, right? I think what you said about the pub, like you go in there and you share life stories and, you know, washes away the competitive side. Cause I'm someone that goes back and forth with the love of competitive golf too. And, but definitely when it's match play, like four ball, I could play that every day, 36 holes a day, like, you know, knock each other out. And cause there's just something about match play like that, that can never be replicated by stroke play. Uh, to me, can't be, the games like Wolf and Hammer and like 27 dots, like there's something artificial about that that's actually pulling away from what you're talking about. This like simplistic competition that every hole is a present moment and then you get done and it's not, oh, I played terrible, or I played great. It's like, we won two up, uh, we lost three and two. Like, here it is, all right. Well, we talked about the match for three seconds. Now let's, you know, yuck it up and do all that. Stroke play forces you to be present with yourself. Match play forces you to be present with others and everyone. And, and every hole. Every, and every hole, hole, too. Like yeah. stroke play, like you're trying to qualify for the USGA event. You make my red tail in Ohio. I made a nine on the first hole. Hit two balls out of bounds. There's no being – I mean, there was being present for the, the sake of improvement, like trying to like obviously like, okay, let's – you, adversity, let's be present, let's see what you can do after this. But in being present, the, my ability, this is US Open sectional, that was gone or local. Um, there was no getting out after making that nine. So like versus match play, make nine on the first hole. Go next hole, you wipe that thing clean, right? There's a, there's a level of presence there that, um, yeah, it's just, it's a different style of game. Yeah. But yeah. I, I do. That's good. I, I want to get, I do want to dive into, you know, you talked about the business aspect. And for me, this is something I've never got to experience. Um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to start up with a couple of small businesses, but nothing to scale of sales and all that, that you've, you've had to go and you've, 
And we've never talked at depth about that. You know, definitely in the thick of things, our friendship, I'll never forget a Cubs game where we ended up on a back railing and you started disclosing some stuff that was going on um, in terms of the work world and just what a bad place you were in in, in life at the time. Um, but I don't think we've ever talked about the golf aspect of this, like in your relationship with golf when you were thick in that business world and what that did to to golf. So, yeah. What, yeah, th- Oh, that, that was the next unhappiest golf yeah, I've ever been. As I was preparing for this, I, it wasn't hard for me to remember where I was because like, I, I, it was the unhappiest I ever was in my life. Yeah, you were a different person during that little run. And it was the unhappiest I ever been as a golfer. So to your earliest point, uh, those two totally aligned. And, and I wasn't paying attention, honestly, because I was in pursuit of the other things, right? the, the, uh, the status, the, the money, you know, uh, coming from a sales background, you are that quota, you are what you bring in. And, and that became my meaning, which isn't a deep enough meaning to bring happiness is what I learned. Um, and, uh, and the golf just happened to be kind of a footnote in it all, but being a, a, a good golfer. And I, I, I would imagine people in good, it's all hypothetical, but being able to, hit the ball a pretty long way and be able to shoot certain scores that, that, uh, there's a certain level of intoxication of that for the, the higher handicaps or the, you know, people I, I was frankly working for and, and partnering with. And so I did a lot of business golf. I got brought in like, Oh, consign will play. And boy, did that just on top of, I'm not putting it on that just, just itself. Uh, to be an unhappy golfer or unhappy person. But on top of everything else that was going on, I now had this thing that I love that brought me all this this joy and happiness and it was a huge part of my identity. Really almost perversion comes to mind of like it was twisted into this thing that now was an ends to a means, was to close the next big deal, was to bring in the $50 million account. And... And boy, did I start to self-loathe in those situations and, uh, and drink a lot, you know, on the golf course. I, I was also playing with people that probably didn't, you know, they wouldn't talk about Culver in the way that I did, <laughs> you know, they, they wouldn't uh, probably appreciate the finer elements of the game. And that's fine. I think I've grown also to appreciate that everybody's on their own journey in golf and I can't expect people to really, that's why I don't like the term like-minded. It's just everybody thinks differently. Everybody looks at things differently. So I, 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 I've gotten past that, but that was a part of who I was playing with and really was just go out to the most expensive, most exclusive golf club you can find, get clients drunk. And I was told multiple times to let our clients win. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I probably did it only once. <laughs> it, there was, there was something in me that. Oh, so that doesn't, yeah, you, yeah, you. I don't see you ever being someone that lets someone else win because it's not, it's disrespectful, right? We talked about that. That's a disrespectful pursuit. It's a lie. It's lying to somebody. Yeah. If you're gonna play me in a match, I'm gonna play my hardest to win that match. And when you win, you know that you beat me. Mm-hmm. And 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 not just to feel good. And you know, sign our contract the next week. Like that's what was going on. So I I put myself in a really tough spot <laughs> through those those years. And uh, sure enough, I mean, there's there's a number of things 
that that got me out of it more uh, personally, and then it filtered into my golf. Uh, but I I just I quit cold turkey. I started turning down all those invites. I wouldn't go uh, to those places. I wouldn't put myself in those situations. I um, tried to drink less, <laughs> and and now I don't even drink on the golf course. You know, mm-hmm. be very rare. Uh, I had a shot of whiskey on the ninth hole at the old course. I couldn't turn that down from Captain Ronnie, but I can't remember the last time other than that. Uh, and my uncle's charity golf tournament, which oh, is a seven-hour round. Yeah. If I can't drink then, then you know I can't drink ever. And that's part of this. Be clear when when sometimes drinking is part of the experience in the sense of Captain Ronnie, you're having a great time, and he offers Scott a scotch. It's not drinking to drink; it's drinking to share a drink with someone else or your uncle's charity. We're there raising money. Like it is a party of charity, right? So like the drinking there not as because we're golfing and we should drink on the course. It's because this is a party to celebrate the sharing hands or what um, the group that we yeah sharing connections sharing connection uh, that we raise money for Donners Grove Illinois Illinois, great great charity yeah but yeah you're right it it is about that social element of it and so uh, after this the dark days of my golf, I, I just said, I, I'm not going to drink ever on the golf course. And I really just like that one cleansing ale at the end of a round or mm-hmm. a glass of wine in my case, where you just reflect and you socialize and you get to know the people a little bit more as you, as you did on the golf course, watching them play and watching the reactions to things. But I, the, the booze on the golf course, really the people that I see get after it, I just again, back to the happiness, I, I don't see them as very happy golfers. I see them really kind of in pain sometimes and and almost like the golf itself brings them pain. So they're numbing themselves to not care or to not, you know, uh, oh, we'll loosen up. And it's like, you're robbing yourself of the thing that actually is the joyful thing. And it's the pursuit of this really difficult game, overcoming these, these challenges and being with the people that, that, that you're with. Um, so I try to, I don't try, I don't drink on the golf course. I drink after. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've kind of taken the same approach. I mean, we could go down the dopamine hole and what all that's doing in terms of the lack of being present and like why people feel the need to drink and why it leads to feel like a better experience, but it, actually in the long run, the crashes and that it's actually a worse experience and yada, yada, yada. But Rather than go down that route, like I want to circle back. That had to be hard, and or was it difficult for you? Let me not answer the phrase a question that has an answer in it. Was it hard for you to pull back on the business side? Because I imagine you're like, I'm going to be sacrificing sales. My, my, you had. I'm guessing you faced consequences with your bosses, like as you pulled back, like that. That had to be hard. Yes, I would have lost my job if I didn't quit. Before you know, beforehand. Um, it, it lost me relationships. It lost me, um, you know, because I wasn't doing the, the party thing. Um, I, I was viewed by some now to not be trusted. You know, there's a level of that, that, you know, drugs and alcohol. If you do it with somebody, there's that level of trust, right? And, yeah. Cause you're and, both, yeah, you're both culpable. So yeah, you're both, exactly. your, your, your sins are my sins and my sins are your sins. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, b- bouncing from that definitely, um, cost, there was a cost, there was a huge financial cost, huge. <laughs> and, and there was a big, uh, uh, interpersonal cost. And 
the reality of it now looking back, and I remember how hard it was. It was really hard. And I had anxiety attacks around it and certain things. But uh, the reality of it was you were in the wrong place with the wrong people to begin with. So just change that. Change, change that. And uh, thankfully I did. And that's why like launching New Club was a big part of that exploration for me and uh, finding the, the thing in people that, that I enjoy. And, and one big lesson coming out of it, and I think, you know, I heard this with you, Kevin, with your, your Sweetens crew and how you have a hard time kind of enjoying yourself outside of that or outside a new club and the, the relationships that you've made. One thing that, that I, I really learned, I believe, is that you can enjoy it with, with really anybody at any course. And, and it, 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 it's just a mindset and, and you, you have to be open to, uh, the, the other way that people approach it. And I, and see, see what you have in common versus what you have different. Mm. And I know that's kind of a, a, a big broad statement and, and a little bit of a cliche, but it, I, I found that that is the truth. And I'm the happiest when I don't judge people. I'm going to go back to Donnie's mm-hmm. experience. I observe people. I say, that's interesting. Hey, what, you know, why, why'd you, why did you make that choice? <laughs> like, uh, that's one of my favorite things to do now is like, uh, for, for a while there, and I'll say this coming out of that, I had to play with good golfers because I, because yeah. a lot of my value was tied up in being a good golfer. So I had to play with, you know, low competitive golfers, but now my favorite rounds are with the higher handicaps. And those are the people that taught me why I even love this game to begin with. And I observed, and the, what got me out of my own head with all this was I observed their joy and I observed their journey and where they're at. And I'm like, and I don't mean this in a, in a slight, but uh, somebody that's been playing the game three years reminded me of some memory I had when I was seven years old by something mm-hmm. they said. Mm-hmm. You know, something so simple. I'm like, God, I remember when I've been playing the game for four years and I, I had that, that same sensation. I just came back to me. This is awesome. I do need to appreciate this. And so I don't know if that's helpful for you, but it, it certainly helped me. And, and now as part of, of new club, every round that I get to play as a part of that, which really is my only golf these days, I, I look forward to that experience every single time. Just like my comments about John Pretorik, uh, the guy is, was an inspiration to me now and, and really gets me excited to go play this game and, mm-hmm. and be with people like that because you, you don't know until you get to know them. So I'm wondering, you know, I think a lot of golfers we experience the anxiety that might be induced when you're playing with someone new. And there's lots of reasons for that, right? It could be just wanting them to think you're a good golfer. It could be just social anxiety, tons of things. But one of the things I've always learned from you is techniques to engage with other people. That's something you're, it's always, I think, I think it's always been a natural skill of yours, but also I know you've also developed specific skills and you think a lot about that, right? How can I engage and connect with people so they feel valued, so they feel heard? So I help them get what their needs, right? Like you're, you're, you identify, like as you mentioned, you love connecting with other people. Uh, and I'll cut one of the answers. I'll just go ahead and say, like the one thing I love that you taught me is don't ask people what they do for a job on the golf course. Don't ask it. If you ask that in the first hole, you've set the tone for the the, the eighteen holes, and you've just you've torpedoed any sense of the likelihood of connection at a at a personal level. So just don't ask that question. If it comes up, it comes up. But if you can go eighteen holes without talking about profession, even better. So I know that's one of your techniques. What other techniques do you have for, you get paired up with people that, you know, 
I was on a radio retreat and, you know, I'm getting paired with 73 year olds that maybe we don't have anything in common. I, and Claire always laughs. She's like, you get along with older people much better than your own age. Um, <laughs> You're an old soul. But that's like, you know, a situation you get paired with someone that, yeah, you're you're a 22 handicap and you get paired with a scratch or you're a plus two and you get paired with a 17 and they're complete gen- generation gaps. What are your techniques for making sure you're happy on the golf course when you're in those situations where you might, because I know you, both of us would, if we had to like, someone's like, who do you want to play with? I want to play with scratch golfers. Like now I'm going to choose personalities over that. But if I have no personality knowledge, I'm going to choose people of similar ability because the round just goes smoother, right? It's just, it just your your balls are beside each other. You get to talk more and all of that. This is nothing about the quality of the game. It's about okay, yeah, we're always I, beside each other. But like, if you can't choose that and you just get paired up, what, what's your techniques for being happy? That's a good. That's a really good question. I think, I, I think there's been a lot over. Like you said, um, I think I, I I'm fortunate that I inherited a lot. My my father won the most conscientious golfer award for like seven years in a row in Northeast Ohio. I don't know what public gives like some executive golfer magazine. So kind of a weird, weird thing, but Are you sure he didn't run that magazine. <laughs> yeah. I think he did. And, and, and he gave the publisher a lot of putts uh, when they played together, <laughs> which he does way too much. If yeah. you played with my father in a new club event, I, I always, uh, think your scorecard might be suspect. Six, he, six he, feet in ends good. He, he's definitely a gimme guy. Um, but yeah, no t- techniques on, on, cause you're right. It has a lot to do with your own happiness if, if you put those people at ease and there's extroverts and introverts, that's, that's off the top. Like you have to kind of identify that. I also think what I notice, I'm a talker and, and I do like conversation, but I've noticed a lot of people who, who may, may know that about me or see that in me feel obligated to talk. And, and the truth of the matter is you, 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 you really, you want to put people at ease to be themselves. Like that's all it comes down to. And that's why I think asking someone what they do is, is one of the worst ways to start a golf round because you're never going to get that authentic self if they're presenting a, here's my box that I, I want to be in, you know? And, and uh, so I always just find it better to, to, again, kind of observe and watch people. And, and I, I even r- remind people and I'll, I'll tone down how much conversation I might want to make with somebody because there's tons that we say to each other in body language alone on how we react to a shot, on how we felt about a putt, on the way we're walking down the fairway, the way we're getting out of the cart. Like there is a conversation occurring whether you're speaking or not. And so let that conversation take place. Don't feel like you have to fill the void. Just watch each other. And now I'm going to know that – He's picked up his pace a little bit, and ex- ex- he's excited after his birdie. He's in a happy mm-hmm. mood, you know. And or or God, he he's definitely hanging his head down. He's not very happy about the double double start. And and so observing, I think, is a is a big part of it. And not that you want to, uh, you can't do that the whole round. You'll play terrible, by the way, if you if you keep having that level of empathy and, and thought towards others. But. You, you, you certainly have a basis when you observe people to, well, how do you want to put them at ease? What, one thing on the score side, just to be more tactical about it, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I've been known on, on like the second or third hole to say, hey, nobody's going to give a shit what you shoot today. Mm-hmm. 
And I, I've done that for people uh, that are just nervous. Maybe they're in their first new club event or their first new club match. And so I'll, I'll actually directly go at it and go like, dude, I'm never going to remember what I shot today. I'm never going to remember what you shot today. Let's just have a good time. Mm-hmm. And, and the people, I've had a couple people come back to me of like, that was weird, but I thank you for doing it. Like I was, I was in my own head there for a while and I was really concerned about, um, about what my score was going to be at the end of the day. And I was really concerned that, you know, people might think less of me and I'm not a good enough new club member. Or, uh, we, we hear that on a lot of our member calls, uh, yeah. people that are thinking about joining, they're like, ah, I'm a 26 handicap, like, I don't, it's like, no, man, I'm telling you that is not going to matter. And, and once you get into it, the only way is to get into it and understand that it truly doesn't. Um, and that's why things, the other things do, right. Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, the fun that we're having out there, the conversation, of course, but also just like do your best yeah, and, and have a good pace. And so, yeah, th- those are some, I don't know. Those are some of my overarching thoughts. And I, I'll sum it up with this, the lowest common denominator. The thing that we all have in common is where I like to go. One real kind of cool thing about pace of play in my mind uh, or the golf course is we're all sharing both of those things. And so, so like in a positive sense, I, I see now after six years of talking about pace of play as a part of our enjoyment in the game and the, the our, our duty to the rest of the golf course and the full golf ecosystem – I actually see a level of connection between members that are like, dude, this is a new club round, right? Like, yeah, no, don't need re that, you know, let's, let's keep it moving. And, and, and that's, that's where I go. What are the things that we can share in common, um, that are bigger than just, uh, both being scratch golfers or both being 10 handicaps or both being, uh, you know, titleist guys or both being tailor-made guys. Like it's, it's a, there's, there's bigger, there's bigger themes that we all come to the game for. Hmm. Well said. We've covered a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think time goes fast. It does. Um, I, 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 uh, I think there's, there's so many other elements of this that we could expound upon. Uh, the, is there any that you wanted to, to hit home on before we, we wrap? Oh, man. I don't know. I think, you know, the listeners are probably like, man, I didn't, wasn't expecting a, you two just having a therapy session. Again or <laughs> it whatever. is a therapy session. <laughs> this is so. definitely a, this is, uh, for anybody that's still on, um, we apologize. You know, we started um, this co-hosting thing as partially an excuse just to get together and talk to each other because we, Matt and I value that so much. And for everyone out there, you know, it gets harder as you get older to continue to connect with friends. So make sure you find the time. And Matt and I fortunately have a podcast to make that excuse to do this weekly with each other. And this was sort of an excuse to like just get together and, hey, we haven't talked in deep for a while. So let's do that on a podcast. Um, so take that as a lesson learned if you didn't learn anything else. No, but like I think one of the things on happiness is, and you touched on this, that it's not, it's not really a state. Like it's not static that if you think like, oh, I'm going to have five months of happiness or I'm chasing happiness, I'm going to get it. Like that's not that's not how it works. And we know that from the, the research behind happiness too. Um, and it doesn't align with money. Like obviously you need enough money to be above the poverty line. But once I think every study shows, once you get to a certain amount, there's no quality of happiness after that. 
that changes based on more money. The countries that have the highest quality happiness index doesn't align with necessarily financial wealth or things like that. That really it is just a it's a it's a it's a persistent pursuit and just always checking in with yourself. Like for me, it's all uh, and again I learned this through work on the golf side, checking in like am I doing the things that fill me up? And also accepting those things do change over time. They shift in their in their ways. I've had years where qualifying for the mid-am was the, I mean, I cried with the medal in my hand. Like I did, like, because my goal was to make another USGA event. At the time, that was, I was truly happy again, one of the most happiest moments of my life in golf. But then after that, I was like, okay, like I checked off competitive box. I don't have a new competitive box to check off. That's not fake it. And it took me a while, it took me a year to wrestle with that. Like, oh, right now I don't have a competitive bucket that I need to fill up. And so look for the other things, right? So always, you know, happiness is just something you have to always, you have to work at to get, and you have to always check in with yourself on. And it needs unhappiness. You said that earlier. You can't, people think that happiness is actually the avoidance of unhappiness. So you can't have a bad day on the golf course if you're going to have good days on the golf course. And that's not true. You actually need the bad days in order to have the good days. They're, they're, Mm -hmm. um, I think again, Arthur Brooks talks about actually there's two parts of the brain that they don't come from the same place. Mm -hmm. Like it's a different chemistry altogether. And so Mm -hmm. you got to appreciate that and know that and know that you could have both at the same time, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that plays out, um, plays out in golf quite a bit. Uh, I wanted to, hit on some of the other things and kind of draw again this arthur brooks guy just go check him out if you're kind of want to deep dive into having this more in in terms of social psychology but for golf um it's really applicable in these components kevin and i want to just kind of run by what he said are the components of happiness or nutrients the first is enjoyment the second is satisfaction so winning that medal the 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 third is is purpose, and I'll start the the um, enjoyment part requires he says two two things people and memory, and so when you uh, uh, enjoy something, this is his difference between pleasure and enjoyment. I believe mm. that that pleasure is you can do that so solo, but the um, the people matter for true enjoyment, and I think in golf. I know that that conflict of of playing alone, individual sport with playing with others. I think the other thing in golf is, and I'll use the example. Let's use your example of you qualifying for the mid-end because I think that's that's great. It's a lifelong goal. You achieved it. But you did it solo kind of pursuit in the actual round itself. But uh, unless you had a looper, who was your looper? Uh, that one I carried on my own. See, carried your own bag. Okay, solo pursuit. But you shared it with so many others, myself, I knew how much that meant to you. I knew how hard you were working to go towards that specific date. I knew what you put into it. I was so happy afterwards when I got that text. We share, you know, you should get to share that stuff on, I'll use Slack as a, I hate the interwebs and, and mm. you know, online communities. I think it, it kind of separates us more than it connects us, but you are able to share everyone who understands what that specific thing is, what it means to play in a mid-amp. When you share it with them, they're like, wow, dude, I'm happy for you. And so there's a, a connection there, I think, of the people and, uh, and memory. You know, um, I think the combination of communion and consciousness, that it, it, it sinks in that way. So that's the enjoyment side. The other thing he talks about is satisfaction. 
I think, and, and the key to satisfaction, we already hit on this too, is um, humans are made to do hard things. Mm-hmm. And you just, you just hit your mid-M qualification, that medal was, a, that, that's, that's so hard. 1% of competitive golf, of, of like the 1% qualify for that thing. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to, to, to think that that's even a possibility or a goal. So to set high goals is, and do the hard thing, a lot of the happiest people do the hard thing. And that's why yeah. golf is so, I, that when, when I read about that, this satisfaction element, my head was just spinning around golf of like so many people that keep coming back and getting their teeth kicked in from this stupid game. But because of the struggle, it gives you satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So don't go easy routes. Don't, you know. Um, yeah, easy routes don't lead to enjoyment. Right. Right. That was my takeaway from that. And then this last one, and this one's, you want to get real deep before we sign off today? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Purpose. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Purpose is, is meaning. And I think a lot of us will um, f- lack finding purpose in golf because it is a very selfish pursuit, right? You're taking four or five hours away from your other obligations and stuff. Um I, I think my purpose, I don't know, I've actually never put it into words, but if you ask yourself what your actual purpose is for golf, why you play, um, for me, I think it's my well-being so that I can be better for others. Mm. I Like everything I said about that looking glass mirror theory, like I, I notice it catches me it's that check and it gets me out of my head. It gets me, you know, better for others. And, uh, and so that might be my purpose to play golf, but Arthur Brooks talks about this being really difficult for people that people can usually find enjoyment and satisfaction, but they really struggle to find their purpose. Yeah. And he has, a, he has a quiz that, uh, he does for folks. It's two simple questions. Uh, I shouldn't call them simple, but two questions. <laughs> do you want to do the quiz? This is tough. This is, yeah. This is for uh, finding meaning in life. So we're not talking about golf with these two questions, although we could probably come up with our own if we wanted to. Do you want to do this, Professor? Yeah, do it. All right. Or so the f- We'll ask the questions and maybe it'll have to be a teaser for the next episode. So the first question is, why are you alive? Wow. Okay. It's meant to either be related to your meaning for to be alive or maybe yeah. a, a faith, a creator, or, you know, something, something along those lines. But uh-huh. what, why are you alive? What would be your? It's funny the timing here because I'm doing a, this like faculty fellows program. It's like eight of us or so at the UGA and we're doing mission statements about our, our work. Um, but then think about in terms of life too. It's so I've somewhat got, I've somewhat cheated on this in the sense of I've thought about it recently. So it's not a, this is not a completely 100% on the spot authentic answer. This is authentic in that I was on the spot a couple weeks ago, but I I was thinking about like humans in general, but then myself, like, what do I value and why, why the, the way you asked it, why am I alive? To inquire into the nature of things for the purpose of, the betterment of people around me. Hmm. 
Like that's to me why I look at at least personally why I'm alive. I don't want to, I don't want to be up on my high throne and be like that's why everybody needs to live life. Mm-hmm. And that should yeah. be the mission of every human that's ever existed. I do believe there's an altruism there that is a positive, and the more people that embrace that, probably would be a little bit better in society. But I'm happy to be completely wrong on that, and we need to pursue different goals. But for me, there there is a a level which I think that's important is the look to understand the world around us for the purpose of bettering those around us. Yeah. And then the, that's, I think a great answer. (laughs) The second question is for what are you willing to die? Hmm. Yeah. You didn't, you did not ask for whom. Um, So I don't have to give a, a people person or a people answer or in my pets. Um, it could be though. I mean, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, you certainly like, you know, again, I'm gonna play the academic and we can parse this question a billion different ways and like who would it be willing to die for? And obviously parents, wife, pets, uh, my closest friends. Um, no, like wow, for what am I willing to die? It's I not think easy. <laughs> yeah, I think I know what I want to answer. I just don't know how to say it. Like the, the, the ability for others to chase or pursue their wants and desires with the assumption that it's not their wants and desires don't evol- involve the, yeah the harm screw, of screw other, the, earth. the har- harms of others. Right. Like, yeah. Like that's something I'm willing to die for. I, I think of like a, um, a democratic ideal. No, I'm not talking political democracy here, but like we should be able to pursue those things that are valuable to us, presuming they don't harm others, you know? And again, I go to my altruism and that I prefer they also help others, but I'm not gonna require that it helps others, just make sure it doesn't harm others. And I'm willing, I'm willing to die for that. Like people need to be able to chase um, what they value and what they, you know, helps people around them. Um, and that's why I'm a huge, you know, uh, on a lot of social issues, I'm a huge believer in protecting, protecting others and making sure they're in places that they can thrive and that they don't face prejudice and they don't face discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I tell you, it's a tricky, I, I, you answered it better than I did because I asked myself, as probably people listening, if they're still here, they're they're asking themselves those same two questions of like, well, what is my my purpose and meaning? And I asked um, my buddy, uh, you know him, Derek Rigby, who also one of the happiest golfers I know, uh, and fought in Afghanistan, had different things, but his responses were so fast, <laughs> and not not that like I, I think, regardless, it's it's why you're alive because God made me. Hmm. And, and then for what are you willing to die? He said, my family, my friends, and my country. Yeah. And, and I was so envious, Kevin, of his answers. I was like, God, dang, why can't I just think of life that way? And, and I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to any of it. But if you are in search of your, your purpose and why you do certain things, uh, they're great. They're just great questions to ask. For, for me, it did come down to family and friends on both. Yeah. And like, I am here for, I think I was, I think I was put on this earth for my family. I do. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and my friends. Um, and then the other one, the other one that for what am I willing to die? It was my family, my friends. And then I, I had this idea in my head of 
the little guy. Mm. There was there was this seed planted in me. I think it was from my mother long ago that uh, the little guy needs to be looked out for. Meaning, there's a lot of injustice in the wor- world and some insensitivity of people just getting stepped on that don't deserve it. And and I that's a, there's so many of that 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 adds up. But I, I think it it's it's something that's deep in me where it's just like the people that deserve a shot deserve a shot. And, mm. and, uh, there's always another seat at the table. And, you know, I think that that feeds into a lot of my beliefs around, uh, golf culture and the exclusivity of clubs, because it, it really just isn't a, uh, meritocracy. It's a, uh, elitist thing in our country. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, it's such, it just shouldn't be. So anyways, I, I that meaning question was really tough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wanted to adapt those three things, enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose into like the playbook of the happy golfer. I think that's where this is all going. It's just like so many of us love this game and come in and out of enjoyment with it. But I think if we could help people become happier golfers, and the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically about this, Kev, is just we – we've lived this. I mean, how many examples could we just share of the in and out and the the negativity, the criticism and the positivity and the, and the joy and the happiness. And it bleeds directly into our lives. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what I think this, this deeper conversation is about. It's like, there, there are ways to do this and, and golf can really help. Golf, golf is at, at its core, a, a hobby and a recreation that people use, they choose to use their time. When I'm working, I have to work. When you're working, you have to work. Mm-hmm. But people choose to spend their time doing this, and they've always come back to the game. And I'm, I'm thinking of like Dr. McKenzie's quotes about how passionate he was to give up the elite profession of being a surgeon, of, of being a, a man of medicine that everybody regarded up here to build golf courses that everybody at the time regarded down here. And he just matter-of-factly would tell everyone, and it's all amongst his book, because I can impact more lives through yeah. golf than I ever could as a physician. And they're like, what do you mean? The pleasurable excitement that these people get, the health that they get from stepping out and carrying a, their bag or walking a golf course and, and pursuing this very challenging thing, I and, and is my firm conviction that they are better for it. And I feel the same exact way. So I think this podcast is a lot about that, of finding different ways for people to enjoy this game, for people to connect with others, to do it through golf. And it's hard to say that that's a purpose mm-hmm. because golf, again, is a trivial little pursuit that a little ball goes into a hole, but it represents so much exploration that can take us to happiness in life. And that's what that's where the the, the meaning comes together for me or the purpose of of playing golf comes together for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's enough uh, social psychology and and uh, chat for this one. Um, I, I just wanted to thank you for being up for a deep dive, dude. I, I think it's uh, it's a different format than our last couple shows, but um, let us know what you think. I mean, honestly, this is a, a long episode, and and we're not planning on doing too many more of these. I think your regular your regular scheduled program will come back next uh next week but um let us know what you think because we're gonna kind of chop up other topics i mean today was a was a heady one but uh we're gonna get into all kinds of different things the professor and i as well as some other uh newbies who will join us professor thanks for the time 
any uh, any golf on your schedule this weekend? Um, friends in town for football games, so probably not. But we do have the uh, Sweetens Cove member guests, the Endeavor, coming up next week. So I got to get a little. I got to probably do a little bit of practice just to uh, to show for my partner. Yeah, yeah. No, get get after it. I uh, Chris Miller and yourself are a formidable duo, and I have no doubt that you guys will be in the mix. Uh, um, uh, I will. I know like, you're. Root, I know you're rooting against us. So you know. For, well, the, for those that, for those out there that don't know, I have a, a flight option rule. If we win the flight, the guest has the option to pick up for coming back next year. And Mills is the shadiest two handicapper because he turns into Kent State. Chris Miller went under the gun, and uh, we've won the flight three years in a row. So we've got a we got a group of people know that they know that they're next up on the member guest invite list that are rooting against us, but that's all right. Mills yeah, will come yeah. down and he'll be dialed and he's gonna he's gonna carry me this year. I've carried us the last couple of years, but tell him I, we we need that that we gotta sign him up as a national member for new club too because I could see him getting in the mix. We got a national club championship that is going to be in Ohio next year, so oh. uh, it would be a home game for Chris if, he, if he's that a tough out. A lot of game. <laughs> Professor, thank you, sir. I'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thank you to our sponsor of the podcast, True Temper. Will be with us at. Founders Cup this coming week, or at least when this podcast releases, uh, the number one shaft in golf, True Temper Sports. Professor, have a great week. We'll see everybody next time. See you all.